you very much for coming um, this evening. Um, I wanted to um, introduce the panel, but before I do that, just to explain a little bit about the event um, and uh, who has organised it. My name is Fiona Holland and I work at the Centre for the Study of Global Governance um, on a programme about global civil society and together with LSE Arts, we organise an exhibition called Viewing Restricted, Representing Poverty, that's currently on display um, in the Atrium Gallery until the 14th of June. And alongside that is a series of events, and uh, this is one of many of them, in fact. Um, the exhibition is inspired by this publication, the Global Civil Society Yearbook, which this year is themed on poverty and activism. And I'm really pleased um, that this panel has taken place and want to thank the speakers who come from LSE, uh, from the Museum of London, from the Open University, and one of the photographers from Viewing Restricted. Um, because actually, in many ways, it was thinking about London and how poverty is represented, or actually not very often represented, that helped the committee that conceived of the exhibition in its thinking. Um, we basically were thinking about how often you think of poverty as something maybe that's happening out there to somebody else. Um, but of course, uh, around the corner, literally, cheek by jowl and linkers in fields, Several times a week, um, there are a group of people um, who are homeless or impoverished in some way who are queuing up um, to receive uh, free food, um, which is not a side of poverty often that you see represented in London. And on the other side, of course, there's the Charles Booth maps, which soon we'll talk more about um, soon. Um, these are housed in the LSE archives, and you can see them online. Just a little bit about Charles Booth, because again, he was influential in our thinking. He was a businessman turned social reformer and he turned his eye for detail into documenting poverty in London. Um, and map number six, a reproduction of which, which is in uh, the Atrium Gallery as part of our exhibition, shows um, the different uh, colour-coded areas of London that Charles Booth created to indicate class and um, income levels. And in fact, where we're sitting now was classified under his system as black, um, which um, the legend for, for black is um, lowest class, vicious, semi-criminal. Um, so you can see that, that that map helped us in our thinking about how to represent poverty and also indicates you know, what was uh, around the LSE at, the t at that time and some of it continues, it continues today. Um, I should add actually that Booth later expanded on the categories, noting that black, uh, the lowest class, consists of some occasional labourers, street sellers, loafers, criminals and semi-criminals. Their life is the life of savages with vicissitudes of extreme hardship and their only luxury is drink. So at this point, let me turn to the speakers who I'll introduce briefly in order of speaking. Sue Donnelly is archivist at LSE. Uh, in 1991 to 2001, she was project director for the Charles Booth Online Archive, which opened up Charles Booth's inquiry into London life and labour to a broad audience of academic, family, local historians and schools. Since then, she's continued to promote the online archive and the physical archive held in the LSE library in talks, presentations, and articles. She will talk about the Booth's map descriptive of London poverty and user reactions to them. Mishka Henne is a photographic artist based in Manchester, and as I say, he won the Commission for London for Viewing Restricted. His main interest lies in documentary practice and the question raised by its processes and outcomes. He's won three awards, including a Photo District News Award for work produced in China and a Magenta Foundation Award for work produced in the north of England. Um, and he will be speaking about um, his work for being restricted, amongst um, other work, I think. Um, Professor Julian Rose is Professor of Cultural Geography at the Open University and is an author, author of Visual Methodologies, published by SAGE, 2005. 
and of several papers on photography, photography and visuality. She's going to talk about the histories of photog photographing poverty, the spatialities of display, and possible new ways of seeing photos in a digital era. And uh, Gillian's very kind of looked at the exhibition before she's come. <laughs> we'll say a few things about that as well. Dr. Mike Seaborn is a practicing photographer, author of Photographers London, 1839 to 1994, and a senior curator of photographs at the Museum of London, which is a repository of images going back to the 19th century. Uh, actually, a few of these images we've chosen to exhibit in the atrium gallery as well, so you can see them there. Mike will explore some of the issues arising from some of these selected uh, images. So I'd like to um, welcome Sue.
So here we have an overview of all the, the maps that were finally produced, and this is the area that was covered. The inquiry itself falls into three series. There's the poverty series, the industry series, and the religious series. And in fact, underlying the maps and all their data are nearly 500 notebooks that are filled with interviews, questionnaires, um, flyers, and leaflets. Um, but it's actually the maps that have become the most popular and well-known and distinctive part of the project with their colour coding of individual streets uh, and what Booth called the social condition of every area. He actually produced three maps in total and you can see changes both in the way the data was being collected but also in the way London was changing over the 16 years in which he carried out the survey. He began with quite a modest undertaking, which was a single sheet in the first volume of his published volumes of Labour and Life in London. And that was based on information that was gathered in 1886-7. And that just covered an area of the East End, which went from the Regent's Canal in the north and down to the Thames, and through Shepherdess Walk in Hoxton to Bow in the east. That just had six levels of classification, and I'll show you... Um, the details of the classifications um, in a little while. Um, it lacked the, the yellow colour which shows upper middle class households. And then in 1891 he published a series of four maps to go with the um, nine volume edition of the London Life of Labour. And this covered a much bigger area. It went from Kensington Gardens to Poplar and from Kentish Town to Stockwell. Um, and it's worth noting, you can actually see on this map, um, if you look towards the city, it's actually a grey colour, because even at this stage, it was felt that there weren't enough people living in the city for it to be worth being assessed for its kind of social condition. I often get people saying, I want the map of the city, and I say, actually, it's very boring. <laughs> it's just grey. It doesn't really do anything else. And the original maps, um, working maps from that four-map survey, are actually now in the Museum of London collections. The final version, which is the version of the maps which is held here at LSC, was produced in 1898-9 and was published with the final 17-volume version of Life and Labour. It had 12 sheets in total, and it covered an area from Hammersmith in the west to Granite Greenwich in the east, and from Hampstead in the north to Clapham in the south. The original working maps are held in the library, and they're hand-coloured onto uh, one in a uh, 2,500-scale uh, map of, from the Ordnance Survey. And there's also a possible 13th sheet, which covers Woolwich, uh, which has been, was found in the archives during the cataloguing project in, in 2001. He also got into the idea of maps because in 1891 he produced something called a true poverty map of London in, in volume two of his life and labour. And that actually showed the percentages of in individuals living in poverty in a number of zones in the city, from Highgate to Mitcham and Turnham Green, Chiswick and Overton to Plumstead. And this is map number six, which covers Covent Garden and Lincoln's Inn Fields and the kind of what is called our inner west. So where did Booth get his, his information from? To collect the, the basic data that underpins the maps, Booth didn't conduct a house-to-house -house survey. And that's something that, that very often we need to remind ourselves of because his team 
I mean, and although he had about 32 people working with him overall on the survey, there were never that many at any one time. It was far too small to undertake the kind of detailed work that was required. And actually, what he was able to do was to augment his own core group by making use of um, a group of people who were already going out and around London and who were already kind of assessing the levels of wages and the social conditions of families. And these were the school board visitors who were sometimes called the whippers in. Um, they were employed by the local school boards to bring into force the 1870 Elementary Education Act, which had brought in compulsory education for five to 13-year-olds. And Booth actually got the permission of the local um, education authorities to use these officers to help him gather data for his investigation. Um, they were expected to do an annual census of all the families, so it's just families in their area. Uh, and they had a fairly good idea of the condition of the area in which they worked in, or at least those who had been working for a while and who were assiduous did. They would gather information from neighbours and employers, apparently, about particular families. But the Visitors had no right of entry to houses, and they also had no right to any information about income. So although many school visitors were very well informed about the families and streets for which they were responsible, what we're essentially talking about is their impression of the area, their impression of the families, rather than any actual kind of hard and fast information about wages. Between 1886 and 1891, the survey covered about 13,600 London streets. And each school visitor was interviewed for about 20 hours about all the families in their own notebooks. I don't think they did it in you know, one great sort of swoop. It'd be a bit like you know, interrogation time, really. Um, and they, they used to keep their own notebooks with information in them. And to augment this, Booth also interviewed rent collectors and managers of some of the model dwellings. And when it came to doing the later version of the maps, um, they also did a kind of double check on the, the data, or what they consider one, through their walks around various London boroughs with members of the Metropolitan Police Force, um, where they would actually go on the beat with, with members of the police. The information gathered, they would get the house number, the number of rooms each household occupied, the rent of the property, the occupation of the head of the household and the wife's occupation where that was appropriate, the number of children, and then each family was assigned a social classification. We know that Booth also took information from the census and from other people's surveys and from some of the questionnaires and investigations that were done into things like docked labour and sweated labour, but it's quite unclear how that might have fed into the maps. And I think the hard lines of the colours on the map tend to mask the fact that there are some very serious issues around the data, that it isn't always about hard facts and figures, it's about what things look like. And although the material was always was double-checked by school board officials, by local clergy, by charity, organisation society officials, and by members of the police, it was never actually checked by the inhabitants themselves. Booth himself was not able to completely regulate the work, and there are definitely some streets that were not surveyed in detail, and some better-off houses were often omitted, and people who worked in domestic service were often left out. And you can trace between the notebooks and the maps discrepancies in the colours. Um, you know, a, map, a notebook will say this is dark blue, but on the map it might be light blue or whatever. 
So this is the process it went through. Each family was given a social class as indicated by letter. Each street then was given a, a social classification according to the makeup of families. That was checked against the school board visitors' records. Streets were hand-coloured onto the relevant ordnance survey map. And then the hand-coloured maps went on display for review. We know, for instance, that it was displayed in Toynbee Hall. And finally, the revised map was converted to a small scale and included in the publication. And here we have the classification. Even here, it's not all cut and dried. While the map has seven levels, which goes from black to yellow, the actual printed text volumes have eight levels. Um, Booth took us his um, poverty line, as it were, 21 shillings a week, which seems to have derived from the level of income that the school boards considered the point at which families could have fees for education remitted. Um, I'm just going to read through some of these. Fiona's already read out the black one, which is the uh, lowest vicious and semi-criminal. Uh, their life is the life of savages. But above that, we have the dark blue streets, casual earnings, very poor. The labourers do not get as much as three days' work a week, but it's doubtful if many could or would work full-time for long together if they had the opportunity. Class B is not one in which men are born and live and die, so much as a deposit of those who, from mental, moral and physical reasons, are incapable of better work. C, which was 18 shillings to 21 shillings a week, or like the light blue, um, for a moderate family, the victims of competition, and on them falls with particular severity the weight of recurrent depressions of trade, labourers, poorer artisans and street sellers. This irregularity of employment may show itself in the week or in the year. Stevedores and waterside porters may secure only one or two days' work in a week, whereas labourers in the building trades may only get eight or nine months in the year. D and E, which come together, really, um, those are really both fall pretty much within the kind of pink and also the purple streets as well. They have small regular earnings, factory dock and warehouse labourers. Of the whole section, none can be said to rise above poverty, nor are many to be classed as poor, as very poor, and as a general rule they have a hard struggle to make ends meet. And then once we get to 22 to 30 shillings, they have regular work and are fairly comfortable. As a rule, the wives do not work, but the children do. The boys commonly following the father, the girls taking local trades or take going out to service. And then higher class labour and the best paid artisans and also the lower middle class, which mainly fell within the kind of um, pink and red areas of the country, of, of the city. And then finally we have yellow, upper middle class, servant keeping. The descriptions are pretty judgmental by modern day standards, but the comments for classes C and D in particular are important. I think Booth, like many of his time, found it hard to separate living conditions from character, but in those, those descriptions where he's talking about victims of competition and of casual labour, he is moving towards an idea that poverty is not always the outcome or even ever the outcome of individual failings, but of the structure of the labour market very often and the system. The problems he describes are symptoms rather than causes. And I think in his colours he's making an attempt to create some sort of order out of the chaos of London life, of finding a way of measuring what was happening. I think Booth himself was probably well aware that the colours were a blunt instrument, that black and blue areas would 
contain many families absolutely horrified of being you know, categorised in this way. But his aim was to find a way of comparing areas and making analyses and using the colours um, allowed him to measure that and to take a look at it. I think it's interesting, while much of the inquiry languished during the uh, 20th century as it was very difficult to use prior to the development of the online archive, the maps have proved to have a kind of real enduring appeal. They're visually attractive and endlessly interesting. They're the kind of thing many people want to have on their walls. <coughs> the London Topographical Society reproduced the, the 1889 edition and LSC reproduces a version of the 12 map one, both of which are very popular. The Booth Archive is now our most popular collection and since uh, in the last year we've actually had over 86,000 visits to the online archive and 18% of the inquiries that the archives receive each year relate to this archive. And perhaps even more interestingly, people are much happier to discover that the street they now live in, or that the ancestor they uh, are investigating, lived in a black or blue category street rather than yellow or red. There's a desire to see that perhaps there's been a development or an improvement, and to have something measurable to consider. Um, what I'd like to talk about for about 10 minutes uh, is I want to reflect really on my, the different roles that um, I had in photographing poverty. I think the idea of photographing poverty sounds like a really neat and simple kind of phrase, but it's actually fraught with problems. Uh, and I think one of the real uh, questions that has to be asked is, who, who are we photographing poverty for? And I think to a large extent, the answer to that question determines the outcome of the work itself. It determines to some extent the images that, uh, that you're left with. And uh, what I experienced in working on this commission for the LSE was that I actually uh, photographed poverty for many different outcomes. Um, one outcome is the exhibition that's uh, next door which is a very kind of, um, I'd say, impressionistic take on the idea of poverty and the economic divisions that we see in London. And uh, I'll talk a bit about that. But um, this is the cover of, of the yearbook. And uh, I just wanted to show this because this is an image of Vicky Laker, who I spent quite a lot of time with, uh, in a place called Alexander Court, which is in Hackney, which is a, a hostel for homeless families. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but one of the things that I really wanted to uh, focus on in this commission was not just creating cliches of what poverty looks like, because I think we all know what they look like, but I, I was really interested in the mechanics that keep people uh, in poverty. That's to say, the kind of bureaucratic, uh, technological systems that are in place that keep people kind of excluded from uh, basic rights, 
effectively. But that's extremely difficult to photograph. I mean, how do you photograph uh, things like that? Um, now, access to uh, Alexander Court was done through uh, a, a group called the London Coalition Against Poverty, uh, who were kind of really dedicated group of uh, young and old activists who help uh, people in need get through real bureaucratic nightmares, as far as I can tell, um, to give them access to housing and shelter and uh, things like that. Now, when I arrived at Alexander Court, um, I kind of arrived with my photographic eye looking for pictures of poverty, effectively. Um, and as I kind of guessed uh, in writing my proposal, images of poverty in London are not really going to be the same types of images of poverty that you might find in Mumbai, um, which was another of the cities that was being represented in the exhibition. Um, but straight away, uh, as soon as I turned up, the residents of Alexander Court saw me as somebody really useful who could actually photograph evidence of the neglect that uh, the state of the homeless hostel was in. So I was asked to basically go from flat to flat photographing uh, things that had enormous meaning to the residents that could be given to solicitors fighting their cases um, in court to, to stop them being evicted from these hostels, for example. So these images are kind of nothing to do with the history of photography, really, when it comes to representing poverty. But uh, this, for example, is a bedstead that um, many of the children will repeatedly cut themselves on, on the uh, exposed uh, poles there. This is a gas tap next to one of the beds that would never close and have no locking mechanism, so the children would often be caught kind of with their hands in there, fiddling with the gas taps. And more shock most shockingly than all, um, really, was the discovery for me that the residents would pay £350 a week to Hackney Council to stay in this hostel. Now, the housing benefit obviously covered that, but with the council also managing the housing benefit in some way, uh, if you look down the right column, you can see that some weeks the benefit is paid, other weeks it isn't. And soon enough, uh, Vicky Laker, in this case, would find herself £4,800 in debt to the council. Um, and again, how do you photograph that? I just threw this in, which is a Foxton's, off the Foxton's website, to give a sense of what £350 a week might buy you on the, on the same road or on an adjacent road in Stoke Newington. And I find these contrasts really interesting between what 350 can buy you, depending on where you are on the, uh, on the ladder, if you like. Now, aside from all of that, just having this, the, 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 the nous to stay in the hostel means that these people have to engage in tremendously complex and lengthy uh, paperwork and exchanges with the council. There's a constant threat, as you can imagine, with debts accruing of, at £350 a week. There's constant threats of eviction, of bailiffs being sent in. And so this is Vicky Laker's pile of correspondence with Hackney Council, which dates for just a six-month period. 
And one of the things I thought about doing, actually, in representing poverty, I thought perhaps one of the most effective ways of representing poverty would be to simply read out this one letter from Hackney Council to Vicky Laker explaining why she was to be evicted from the property. Now, as you can imagine, the letter is full of legalistic jargon, um, full of references made to letters dating back months and months and months. And incredibly, Vicky Laker, a, a Ugandan uh, political refugee, for whom English was a second, only a second language, would fight these battles with the Hackney Council on her own, with the help of the uh, Young Coalition Against Poverty activists. But I feel that really gives you a sense of kind of the bureaucratic trap that many people find themselves in, which again is extremely difficult to photograph and certainly doesn't fit with the cliched images of what poverty is. Now, that was, that was my role as kind of evidence gatherer for the people that I was photographing. Um, I had another role which uh, was surprising to me, which is that the activists would fight the bureaucracy as, as much as they could to treat the people who were on the receiving end of it all with a little more dignity and with a bit more respect. And one such event occurred when um, a march was arranged to the job centre on uh, Tottenham Road in Hackney. And really all the activists wanted to do was to meet with the management of the job centre uh, to agree to, to stop sending the uh, residents of uh, Alexander Court backdated letters, for example, which meant that um, the residents would miss out on uh, certain benefit, essential benefits. Um, and I was, brought, I was asked to come along because having an official photographer present seemed to give the activists comfort that this would in some way legitimise the protest. And um, I should say that the, the activists were extremely well sort of behaved and were extremely conscious about how they, they themselves might be perceived by the security guards at the job centre. I mean, I was surprised that there were security guards at job centres these days. I mean, it's like going into a nightclub. But um, when, uh, when we got there, being the photographer, I, w I was the one that was immediately uh, cornered and stopped from taking pictures by the security guards. I mean, the other activists, luckily, had cameras themselves, um, but I had a really big camera, which gave me more legitimacy. So uh, one of the activists took this picture, and then 10 minutes later, this picture of me being stopped and searched on a Section 44 of the Anti-Terrorism Act by uh, the police officers who came soon after the protest started. Um, I was deemed to be uh, suspicious because I was photographing a public building, um, and as far as they know, as far as the police knew, they said um, we could all be armed and dangerous, um, which is why I was stopped and searched. But I felt, I felt that, that that was really interesting. Once the obvious shock of it left, uh, I found it really interesting that, th that, the, that the person deemed, nobody else was stopped and searched, I should add, just, just me. And I found it really interesting that the presence of a camera recording a scene of these people trying to stand up for their rights was seen as more threatening uh, than anything else. I found that really interesting and quite 
another insight into maybe some of the obstacles and barriers that face people who are trying to uh, fight injustice. Now, another uh, role that I played with the activists is that they, I think Jules, Jules Pipe, the um, mayor of Hackney, famously said in a debate that the people who were fighting gentrification wanted to keep Hackney crap. So um, the activists produced a booklet called Hackney Isn't Crap uh, in response to that. And um, they really wanted to use my images, which I was really, uh, again, really surprised about, but felt great about, because uh, there's nothing quite like having your pictures reproduced really badly in black and white <laughs> on a photocopy. No, really, I think it's great. I think it's really fantastic. It's more exciting than having a really slick sort of presentation, I, I think. And, and, um, and so these photographs, the designers, I love, the designers had no respect whatsoever for keeping the images at the right proportion, so they just squashed them in to fit with the article. But I, again, I think that's great. I think that's really nice because, again, it gives you uh, a sense of what they thought, of the, the use they thought the images could play. So I, I, that's something I was really proud to, to be able to do. Um, now, I guess the third role, really, is uh, the role of interpreter. And I think it's this idea that I was surprised to hear that Charles Booth, uh, much of his work was based on kind of impressionistic accounts of London, because I think in, in some ways, as a photographer, that's what I was doing, walking around Hackney, spending weeks walking around, listening to people's life stories and the problems they were facing. And I'm walking around Hackney and trying to interpret all of, all of the things that I was listening to and learning about into images. And um, one of the things, actually, that, uh, again, challenged my own views of photography was the slogans that I'd encounter. So not images, but slogans. So, for example, one that is bombarded on the tube network, on the bus network, or just in the street, with messages constantly, constant messages. And uh, these messages are in locations that are really well thought out. So the billboard companies know, get, have a pretty strong idea about who's walking by the billboard at what time of the day and all of that stuff. That information is freely available on the internet. And I, re I was really interested in the idea, in, in, in who these billboards were talking to and the kinds of divisions, maybe, that they reflected. And then, of course, is the graffiti. So you had these competing kind of discourses, competing ideas and messages uh, that the population of Hackney was constantly being bombarded with. And uh, goodbye, damage, good morning, beautiful hair. That's one of my favourite slogans because I love the idea of washing your hair being allied to the idea of washing a city clean of the dirt, which I think is what regeneration in some ways is about. Um, and in a project like this, you really get to use things like that in that way. So um, what do you do with all this material? Well, again, to go back to the question of who are we picturing poverty for, I think in this exhibition, um, the uh, outcome was quite different to maybe um, how it might be in, in another setting. And what I decided to do uh, for the exhibition is to kind of layer as many of these things in as possible. So to kind of ally some of these messages and slogans that I'd encountered with images that I myself had encountered around Hackney. Now, because of this edit, 
these are kind of cliches in some ways, I think you can say about poverty. I hope that I've, I've talked enough about them to uh, give them a bit more context.
and perhaps this was this particular uh, exhibition, but, but it did strike me that all the photographs were actually quite small, and a lot of the contributors had presentations that moved the photographs on as you were looking. Um, and I think there's a, a resistance there to that sense that you, know, you can picture poverty and just kind of stare at it as an object there on the wall. Um, these were kind of quite small pictures. Some of them reminded me more of, of kind of family photographs or, or postcards, actually, perhaps rather than the kind of art photographs we, we might expect from some kind of documentary traditions. Um, so there was a sense there of perhaps trying to sort of deflect this voyeuristic gaze that, that picturing poverty uh, often, uh, often induces by, by the kind of format of, of the pictures and the way they're presented. And then there was something I, I think Mishka's work did in, in particular, which was try to address poverty kind of in, in, in the context of the exhibition, kind of indirectly, by talking about other things like one of the sets of photographs comes from a hospital in New York um, and, and, and addresses poverty through the, peop the particular people's experience of being in, the, in that specific place. Um, Mishka looks at, at how the um, uh, slogans and advertising kind of call, address people differently across what is actually the highly differentiated uh, social geography in Hackney, very rich people living alongside very poor people, uh, and how those slogans we just saw uh, talk to them very differently and get different position and differently, get different responses from them. Um, and that, uh, that, that question of, of uh, that issue of, of uh, representing uh, poverty kind of indirectly re re leads me to the, to the second um, uh, thought that I had uh, relating to that exhibition. Which is, um, you know, just just how just how we do picture poverty. How is that whole problematic kind of set up? And in particular, the role of the gallery uh, and, and of, of the commissioned uh, the commission, I suppose, the, the documentary photograph commission. And again, and we've already had a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that certainly the critical literature that I'm familiar with that talks about documentary photographs kind of treats them as photographs, as images, kind of there to be interpreted, to be decoded, to be read. Uh, uh, interpreted. What it pays much less attention to, I think, um, with very few exceptions, is the way in which that, that reading is, is a kind of social process, and it takes place with particular people in particular places. Um, so, for example, uh, I think putting, asking to produce, asking to produce um, photographs for a uh, display in an art gallery um, puts a particular frame around those images uh, in ways that, for example, having them produced in black and white in a photocopy that gets handed out at, uh, at local community centres doesn't. That, you know, there, there are two very different kind of framings there of the image. Um, you know, the gallery, you know, we have the white walls, which kind of has the overtones of the kind of modernist art gallery, and that somehow there's, there's sort of some art thing going on here. And I think in particular what that does is position the photographer as a, as a very, um, you know, as the creative individual in all this. And although several of the exhibits uh, in, the, in the show here try to sort of resist that, uh, the one in Shanghai in particular um, has people's uh, interview voices playing over, over some images and talks about the way the photographs were taken in collaboration with the people being photographed. Nonetheless, somehow it's still the photographer's project. And I think that's got to do almost not with the, the photographer's intentions, but with the way that you know, when we as an audience enter uh, an, an exhibition space, a gallery space, those white walls, we kind of expect to see an author's work. Uh, and we kind of engage with it, I think, in particular ways. You know, probably doing what I've kind of done, you know, perhaps if we're informed about the history of photography, uh, you know, try, trying to kind of say, well, when, what kind of practices of representation are going on here? Kind of doing a, a, a sort of visual decoding, I suppose, of, of the images uh, and their impact. And that's a really particular um, frame, then, that gets put around certain sorts of images. And I think perhaps when we're thinking about picturing poverty more generally, uh, it would be very interesting to think more about the, 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 the different framings that happen 
you know, how is an art gallery different from a, from a photocopied pamphlet? Or how is a billboard different from, I don't know, a, you know, a, a 20 second TV ad? Um, I think those questions of audiencing uh, and of putting uh, images in, into very specific kinds of circulation, invoking different ways of looking and different ways of viewing, uh, are something that we, we could, we could uh, think more about. Now, it did, it did strike me that, um, I mean, that, that's the question I'm, I'm kind of interested in as a researcher. It, it wasn't one that the, the exhibit itself really addressed, and I think it's difficult to address within the, um, the gallery context. But there are examples, certainly um, from, from picturing poverty in London, of uh, you know, artists, photographers, filmmakers who have tried to do quite different things, and we've, we've already had one example. Um, but there's a kind of history of, of alternative practices. I don't know whether Mike might say something about this as well. That it, you know, it, be, it would be worth kind of recalling and, and perhaps trying to build on. Um, a particular example that I came across in, in research I did a long way a while, a while ago was, was a video I unearthed in um, Tower Hamlet's local history library. Uh, it was a video um, that had been found in somebody's kind of downstairs, understairs cupboard, I think, and sort of found somebody thought the library might be interested in keeping it, which thank goodness they, they were. It was, it was a film, a community film made in Poplar in the early 1970s by a group called Liberation Films. Um, and it uh, looked to the history of Poplar as a way of building kind of community activism around in Poplar in, in the early 70s. But what it did was um, reflect on the whole process of making a film in Poplar about the past and what had happened in, in, in the present. So you had these great shots of people walking around with these huge battery packs and those enormous early video cameras, um, kind of talking with people about how they were going to photo the, the carnival. And then a long scene, which is clearly really important, about how that film eventually got, got screened you know, not in a, in a gallery, or, but in a, in a packed church hall, absolutely thronged with people, all there, to see themselves on film. And I think that's something about um, the sort of affirmative power of seeing yourself visualised if, if you're, if you're uh, you know, marginalised in so many ways. Um, but there was a kind of reflexivity to that process in the actual filmmaking itself, which I, I thought was really, really interesting, you know, acknowledgement that that film was not meant to be screened on, you know, kind of BBC Four slot, such a thing existed then. It was there to, to, be, feel, you know, to be shown to, to local people, you know, hence it, its kind of almost disappearance and a kind of video, you know, sort of, uh, or, or, you know, the, the film eventually, uh, you know, recovered in rather indirect ways. So there's something about, about the, the, the practices of, of, of displaying uh, images that I think we, you know, there's a history to that we might, might recover. Uh, and finally, and just very, very briefly, um, I think that, you know, the, the present now is, is a really, really interesting moment to start thinking about these questions uh, you know, once more because of the impact of, of, of digital uh, technologies. Now, I think um, there's a lot of hype around digital technologies. Um, and I think they're being used in all sorts of very diverse and quite specific sorts of ways. So I don't want to start going, oh, everybody's taking photographs and putting them on the net, because I, I don't think they are. But nonetheless, um, I, I think it would be really interesting to think about the ways in which um, another way of thinking about picturing poverty, if, if that's what it is, whatever that, that thing might be, is to look at um, other, other sorts of picturing practices, po popular pr picturing practices, which are enormously popular. Um, you know, I'm thinking you know, of family photography. And again, you know, the oral history projects rely on people, on gathering people's family photos. But now, I mean, now people are taking, with digital cameras, people can take so many uh, snaps now of, of their ordinary lives. Uh, clearly selective. They're clearly telling quite, I think, sophisticated and, and careful stories about their lives. So I'm not suggesting this is some kind of, you know, window into a world that professional photographers can't access. 
it's, it's an equally constructed and creative process, I think. Um, but I think it's being done on a lot of people. Uh, and another thing that's really interesting to me, uh, a camera phone images, for example, very banal images taken to be sent and then trashed, but nonetheless a kind of visual form of communicating something about a social network in a particular social context that, that's not really being given a lot of attention right now. And, and I think some of these digital forms and practices uh, are, are really, um, you know, d deserve more attention than they've been getting. And I think that's true because uh, my last point, uh, as a geographer, I want to raise the question of, of the kind of spaces of poverty. Um, poverty has a complicated geography, and we tend to look at it in particular places. And of course, Booth did, you know, did that he mapped poverty and located it in particular streets, particular houses in East London. Um, but there is an argument that perhaps some of the most significant poverty associated with London put it like that, it's not actually in London at all. It's in uh, Africa, or it's in parts of India, or it's in uh, you know, the sweatshops in, in uh, Sri Lanka. I'm trying to not say fall into cliches here. But, but London as a global city, um, you know, clearly it, you know, it's deeply implicated, and you know, it's the home of, of, a, of a kind of neoliberal global, emerging global order. Uh, clearly is implicated in poverty in all sorts of parts of the world, not, not just London, London itself. And I think there's something there about the kind of mobility, particularly of digital images, uh, you know, that, that might start to speak to some of this quite complicated geographies of poverty, instead of locating poverty in particular places, almost as if it's just the fault of those places. Um, thinking about how what causes poverty has a very complex set of links and, 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 uh, uh, and connections. Um, and that, uh, that photographs as objects that have always been mobile and now as digital files are even more mobile than ever might begin to speak to some of that quite complicated uh, set, set of relations around, around uh, uh, local and, and global uh, poverty. Um, well, I want to uh, go backwards in time now, <laughs> uh, back to the very earliest uh, depictions of poverty in London. Um, so this is before we've had a century or more of the mass media. So uh, photography is functioning in really quite a different way, I think. Uh, it's, it's a relatively new medium. Um, I'm just going to talk about the work of, of two photographers. Um, John Thompson, uh, <coughs> who collaborated with uh, a journalist to produce uh, a series of photographs called Street Life in London, which was published as a, as a part work and then as a, as a bound volume in 1877. Um, this image is um, from Street Life in London. It's titled Hooky Alf. Uh, and Hooky Alf is the character you see on the far, the far right of the picture with the, the hook for an arm. Um, 1870s, this is before Charles Booth's survey, uh, the issue of poverty was, was one that London was, uh, or administrators of London were beginning to be concerned about. Um, perhaps the, one of the earliest uh, and very influential uh, sort of studies was uh, Henry Mayhew's London Labour and London Poor, which had been done in the 1850s. And although Mayhew had reproduced images as part of the uh, the publication that he did, 
Uh, they were not photographs. They were drawings based on photographs. Uh, <clears throat> at that time, in 1850, there was no way of mechanically reproducing photographs in any form in, in the way that we're, we're so used to today. And by the 1870s, the technology had moved on a little bit, and it was possible to do a limited run of reproductions using a, uh, a process called the Woodbury type. Uh, and this is the technology that was used to produce uh, Street Life in London. And in the preface to Street Life, the author, or the authors, Ad uh, Ad Adolf Smith and John Thompson, talk about, and I'll quote, the unquestionable accuracy of this testimony, i.e. photographs, will enable us to present true types of the London poor and shield us from the accusation of either underrating or exaggerating individual peculiarities of appearance. So what they're <coughs> specifically saying here is, look, whatever you may, your views may be, we're showing you real photographs and you can't argue with that. This is, this, you know, this is the idea that the camera never lies. And this, this was uh, an incredibly influential idea at the time. We, of course, now know that it's far from the truth. Um, but as a, as a selling point for this, for this body, body of work, it, it was the big thing that they were, they were uh, trying to put across, that photography guaranteed the truthfulness of what they were trying to say. Um, but this particular image, and I should say that the way the photographs were done, um, they're all taken in the street. Um, previously, photographs had been mainly done in the studio, photographs of people. Uh, the ones that Henry Mayhew had had engravings done from were daguerreotypes done in the studio. I think they were done in the street primarily because the street is accessible. Uh, this has already been alluded to that you know, photography uh, goes to where it's accessible to take photographs. Um, and the people were photographed by appointment, but invariably, or in many instances, uh, things went wrong when it actually came to doing the photograph. Um, in this particular case, although the, the photograph is titled Hooky Owl, this guy on the left, I mean, who's centre stage in this picture? It's a little girl. Uh, <laughs> um, and regarding that, uh, the authors say, uh, Hooky Owl, by the way, lost his hand as a result of an industrial accident. However, the authors, and I again quote, there is no sight to be seen in the streets of London more pathetic than this oft-repeated story <coughs> the little child leading home a drunken parent. So what we've got a, a specific uh, uh, allusion to here is the idea of drink being a cause of poverty. And this is something which, which appears over and over again. And the bigger picture relating to that is that poverty is the individual own fault primarily. I mean, this was very much what uh, people thought. Uh, I should point out that uh, the photographer John Thompson, um, before doing this project in 1876-1877, had spent many years photographing in the Far East, particularly in China, um, and had published a number of books. I mean, these were travel books. This is, you know, exposing uh, to the British public what, what it was like in other parts of the world. And really, I think this particular project falls into the same sort of uh, idea. Only instead of travelling to the other side of the world to see the exotic, you just 
you just go into the East End or you go into some area of London that respectable people don't normally go into. So it's this idea of, of uncovering uh, lots of sort of sort of other kinds of people living within your own society. This is probably quite a familiar image. It's one that's been used to sort of represent a kind of 19th century idea of poverty uh, a huge amount. Um, it's called the Crawlers, um, and they're described. Uh, those wrecks of humanity, the crawlers of St. Giles, may be seen both day and night seeking mutual warmth and mutual consolation in their extreme misery. I guess this is a picture that Thompson simply couldn't resist because, in fact, this isn't the person he was supposed to be photographing. Um, he'd made an appointment to photograph uh, another woman, and when he turned up the, for the, uh, to do the photographic session, the other woman had actually found some work for the day. <laughs> Uh, and had given this woman, the craw described as the crawler, her baby to look after, to child mind. Uh, so, something which, you know, I think most photographers are familiar with, you take advantage of circumstances which aren't what, quite what you'd expected. Uh, who could resist a picture like this? The pictorialism of poverty, I mean, it says it all, doesn't it? So, the book was published, um, obviously, to buy a book you needed money so it was reasonably well off people who were the audience for this it wasn't the people depicted it was very much middle classes looking at the other in their, um, in their society um, it was not very well received at the time there were those who saw it as a, a, a work of art you know, it was a book and a beautifully bound gold, gold toothed uh, uh, leather um, but they didn't regard it as good enough to be art. On the other hand, there were those who thought of it as propaganda, but thought, well, but, but the way it's been presented doesn't really maximise the opportunity for it to be propaganda, so there's quite a debate about it. But it has to be said that, th in many ways, this work, which was the first published social documentary photography anywhere in the world, set a trend uh, and sort of laid down certain class, what we now regard as classic ideas for the way you document something like poverty. Uh, and particularly that you focus on individuals. The idea that by photographing the individual you can somehow uh, say something about society as a whole or about a section of society as a whole. And this is something which is really only relatively recently started to be challenged. Uh, you know, this, what we call the documentary tradition certainly goes right the way through from the 19th century to the 1970s. Now, the other photographer I'm just going to say a little bit about um, was John Galt, who was a Scottish Methodist, um, middle class, lower middle class origins, who came to London... Uh, in the 1890s and became a missionary with the London City Mission <coughs> and for a number of years was the London City Mission's missionary based in Bethnal Green so he was engaged with helping or alleviating the conditions of poor people in the East End but he also or actually not at the time he was doing that but after 
he'd spent some time doing that and in fact had moved, been moved on to another area, he decided to do a series of photographs. Um, <coughs> at least we assume he took them. It's possible he commissioned somebody to take them, but we don't know uh, of any other name associated with these photographs. Um, and the reason that the photographs were taken was because the missionaries had to raise a large part of their own funds to carry out their mission work. And one of the ways they did that was by travelling around the country giving illustrated lantern slide lectures. So these photographs were made as lantern slides and used uh, in these fundraising lectures. This first image um, is called the Cat's Meat Man. Um, this is the guy in the middle with the cart bringing around all the old meat that's unfit for human consumption being sold as cat's meat. Um, but one of the things which I think are interesting about these photographs, which, which are slightly unexpected, I think. Um, it's a group, you know, it's a, it's a street scene, group of people posing to the camera. You've seen it many times. Every single photo, there's, there's about a, 40 or 50 pictures in the series. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you a couple of them. Every single photograph, there's a guy in, with, a, with a hat and a tie. And he is the missionary. The missionary is included in every photograph. This particular photograph, also, if you notice on the top of the building, has the word ER. And this refers to uh, the coronation of Edward VII in 1902, which is when the photograph was taken. Now, the context for these photographs, as I said, is was to um, illustrate lectures to raise funds for the mission. So, essentially, this is a religious con a context for these photographs. Why would people want to give money? Well, because what the mission missionary is saying to them is, well, look, these are people, they may be poor, but they're one of us, and they're worthy of salvation. I mean, it's, it's a religious context. It's all about... The, uh, being saved by, uh, <coughs> by God. So there are symbols which help to establish the respectability of, of the people being photographed. And one of those is the relationship with the king. And the other is the relationship with God's representative, the missionary. And I think the inclusion of those two elements are really quite key to the message that God was putting across to his particular audience, which of course were the people... Um, that he was trying to solicit funds from. Now this image is in Bethnal Green. Um, here's the missionary with his hat. The thing in the centre is a pigeon loft. What I think is interesting about this photograph, well, two, two things in particular. One is that in the top of the pigeon loft you've got a man with a small child. Why on earth would you have a man with a small child poking out of a pigeon loft? And the other is the format, that is a vertical picture with a lot of blank sky above, above the chimneys. What's, what's the purpose of that? Why, why, why photograph it like that? It's a framing of the photograph. Um, but I think within the context that uh, I've been describing of why the photographs were taken, then it begins to make sense. This sort of area, Bethnal Green, 
uh, or other parts of the East End, other parts uh, of other large cities, uh, were characterised by what were termed slums. And slums were often put, put across uh, as being dark, subterranean kind of places where there was no light, there was no air. Um, this was often a reason behind some clearance schemes, was to open them up. So here's Galt in a, what would have been described as slum, but actually picturing it in a way where you see light, you see the sky. This is kind of going against the grain, really, for the way slums were, were being photographed at this time. And not only that, but you've got somebody, uh, uh, a man and a small child, who are reaching up, reaching up to the sky. Again, it's this religious illusion, which I think is important. And this runs right throughout the series of photographs. Uh, for this, and what I think one can see how his audience would have begun to read these photographs in terms of, well, we'd always thought, well, I mean, I'm putting it in a very crude way, but, you know, we'd, we'd thought that these people were kind of subhuman. You know, they were hidden in, in these parts of, of, of London, which we don't, you know, we would never go there, and we don't really, and, and, you know, they're not really the same species as us, almost. I mean, this, 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 the kind of talk was being, was being made. And Galt is trying to counter that. He's trying to say, no, look, these, these people may be poor, but they are human. They're as worthy of salvation as anybody else, and you should help them. Okay. It's a question for Mini aimed at Mishka. Um, do you have plans to take the photographs in the exhibition uh, to Hackney? Because obviously the discussion about you know which audiences actually get to see this picture, obviously it's in a kind of academic institution where presumably primarily academic middle class people will get to view it at the moment. Well, it's uh, a good question. The legalities of it are that I, I have a contract signed which, <laughs> which means that the images are embargoed until December 2009 which means that they can't be shown anywhere without permission of the LSE so that's a kind of legal constraint right there but I mean I've contacted the building exploratory in Hackney which I think would be an interesting place to work with but uh, as you get used to as a freelance photographer, uh, not very positive reply yet. So I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, taking the work elsewhere <coughs> is, is, uh, is always a challenge just for the mere fact of getting people interested, to be honest. Um, so I, I should probably add to that is that um, we will be open to any opportunities right. to do that. <laughs> um, and actually, um, I should also say that we're aware of the constraints of having the exhibition in the atrium. And actually, originally we did hope to have it in a non-gallery type environment. Uh, but for lots of logistical reasons, that proved more tricky. 
Lizette would be a brilliant place to work with, but uh, you can't get past a receptionist. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, one at the back, right at the very back there. Can you just wait for the microphone? Sorry, because you're quite a long way. Thanks very much. That's very interesting. I'd just like to ask you a question about the neighbouring borough Tower Hamlets and if there's any kind of photographic depiction of the Siege of Sydney Street, which was in 1911, because my late grandfather often used to talk about that, and if, the, if that interests anybody on the panel or, or you know anything about it, if you could clarify and talk a bit more. Thank you. Um, there certainly are photographs of it. Um, it was covered by the media at the time. Um, quite a lot of photographs, I think. Uh, Ch Churchill would visit it, didn't he? There's certainly photographs of Churchill visiting it. Um, I think there's some in the museum. I think there's one or two in the Museum of London archives. So they're, they're around. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, there's a man here. Thanks so much. It's just a quick observation, really. I mean, when you think of the power of Charles Booth and, and, and the sort of movement that it engendered to sort of deal with poverty, which I think it did, and the LSE were part of that, I'm just slightly disappointed with the modern-day version, which seems to be essentially doing stunts at benefit offices and doesn't really engage people in the way that Charles Booth did, including the staff who work at benefit offices, who are usually some of the poorest people around. And maybe there's some lessons for that. I'm not looking for comments or justifications, but we may be going backwards in terms of social change rather than forwards. And maybe photography's got a bit more use than some of the things that have been outlined tonight. Actually, could you just repeat your question, your comment, actually? Sorry, so we're, so we're clear. I think my comment was, listening to the project in Hackney, it sounded like a series of stunts, arranged, photo you know, arranged photographs, demonstrations at the uh, benefit office where the security guards were called. There were some of the poorest paid people in London, by the way, and yet there was some outrage here about, you know, that they wouldn't let you in. I'm not surprised they didn't let you in. And I just think when you think about how Charles Booth built up, you know, an engine of protest, which actually involved using staff such as the, the poor law, you know, the, the school guardians, maybe we've not, we've, we, you know, we've, we've not learned from that. And these sort of things, which essentially, I'm sorry to be, you might think I'm being rude, they just sounded like a series of stunts rather than anything else. The poor are, are much more than the people who live in hostels. There's an awful lot of working poor who are very marginalised in this debate, and I don't think you've done anything to, to change that tonight. Yeah, I can, I'd love to answer that. <laughs> um, the, um, it, it, it was a far more complicated project than I've got time and I had in t t to recount in 10 minutes. I mean, I, I gave a talk last night, which was an hour long, and that wasn't even enough. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of encounters and relationship, relationships that one strikes up. Um, I mean, I, I worked with Unite, uh, the union. I worked with uh, drug rehab services in Hackney. I worked with the brain injuries uh, uh, charity on Kingsland Road. The whole project is, an in, is a whole series of negotiations, uh, effectively, in the time span, if you can imagine, trying to come out with something coherent in two months. 
And I think, in a way, that, that it's a really interesting... I think it's, your critique is completely valid, because I think, in, in some ways, it's critiquing the commissioning process itself, if you like. Um, and that is something that, as a photographer, you're, you're always operating in, unless you're working... You know, you, you, you're fortunate enough to have the, the means to work on your own personal project over the long term, which I do, but not this one wasn't such a project. As, as far as um, the benefit office, there is something really interesting which I didn't say, which is that uh, the staff were really sympathetic to the uh, claimants, and I, I recorded uh, most of the discussions that were happening between uh, the claimants and the staff, and I've got it on tape, staff actually uh, saying that, that they feel that the treatment that these people had received was shameful. As, as far as uh, conveying the whole gamut of people who are considered to be living in poverty, absolutely. I mean, one, an exhibition like this is not going to convey that in, with the parameters that were set. Um, but this, this exhibition was more than just... Uh, the commission was more than just photographing poverty. It was about getting photographers to reflect on their role in photographing poverty. So... Um, I think, you know, it's a valid criticism of the exhibition, but at the same time, the exhibition wasn't really... I think it falls a little bit for that in trying to represent poverty, but I think, I think the, 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 the real momentum behind the project, from, from what I remember, was the, the panel really trying to get the photographers to engage with what were they doing. And that's where I think your criticism comes in, because uh, the parameters themselves could have been shifted. I hope that answers the question. I could say more about the commission process, but I won't for the time being. In case there are more, more questions, <laughs> man up here. It, it's a related question to the last one. I mean, presumably when the, the late 19th century photographs that we saw were taken, photography was relatively new, and mass photography would have been new, and therefore the images would have been doubly surprising, partly of a of a form of London that people, perhaps certainly affluent people, didn't know, but actually in a medium that was new to them. Today, we're all, all too media literate, I guess. I mean, everybody knows how to interpret things. They know how to read very complicated advertisements. They've seen loads of images through the media for decades, and indeed color supplement books of poverty have dominated the shelves for years. And in that sense, I mean, related to the last question, how far is it possible for a, photographer, for a photographer today or any photographic representation of the poor not to get trapped into reinforcing the very thing that the image is supposed to be telling a story, which in the 19th century, I guess, it would have done. But today, and you know, you can see every time some grim piece of news reportage takes place and the TV cameras rush in, they're now, they struggle between saying this is a terribly deprived area and demonizing it, but you know, not knowing quite how to describe it if it's an area of poor people, for risk of undermining the area still further by portraying it as poor. So, I mean, how does a photographer deal with that problem? That is, that the very act of taking photographs of poor people in poor places reinforces the problem, given how media literate we all now are. 
think it's got a lot to do with context, actually. Uh, how images are shown, first of all. Um, it's to do with the relationships that are struck up between the photographer and the subject. There's this assumption that somehow um, the relationship between photographer and subject is a really simple one, and it isn't. Um, you find that people perform for you in a certain way when you're photographing them. I think, to a large extent, they're very, the, 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 I mean, I'm using the word they, which right there is a problem, right? And what I, what I would say before I go on is that those questions are a real problem within documentary photographers. And you, you don't find many documentary photographers anymore that don't consider all these issues. And it's a huge problem. And there's an enormous amount of discussion about how you do this. But this, problem, this uh, relationship between subject and photographer is, is far more complex than I think we give credit for. I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was invited to uh, go into Alexander Court and um, another role that you perform as, as a photographer is listening, actually. Nothing to do with the photograph. The photograph is one sixtieth of a second. There's, it's surrounded by hours of interaction and listening. Um, now, photographically, right? There's a visual. There is. There's a visual grammar. Unfortunately, there's a language that, for example, if I'd have shown you, if I'd have, if I'd have read out that letter, that five-page letter, tonight, I would have been accused of. You know, you've all. Fall, you've probably most of you have fallen asleep, right? And and I think the, the real thing about poverty is the mundanity of it, right? The banality of it, the everyday slog and uh, the, the, the mechanics that keep you there that are really not interesting to look at really when you think about it and the question isn't what necessarily what the photographer's job I think because if I approached the Guardian with documents written documents that I'd photographed uh, what are the chances that those would be published necessarily as opposed to rehashed sort of visual grammar that we sort of used to and that they know will work in uh, the magazine. I mean, I think that applies to all contexts. The gallery, this, this gallery here, exactly the same thing. You know, why is it shown in the way that it's shown? And I think there are these conventions that aren't just down to the photographer. I think photographers are doing some amazing work. Problem does, problem is, it's not, it doesn't get shown necessarily because the, the institutions and the, the, the context in which they show their work is in some cases quite further behind from where the photographers are. But yeah, I, I don't think photographers, I don't think it's a sound judgment to think that photographers are not engaged with all these issues. It's, there's, there's real engagement, but what we're up against is, seems insurmountable often. And I think the, the domain of art is the one domain where uh, documentary photographers have found an outlet where questions can be asked and where modes of representation can be explored. So, for example, the, the, the tragedy is that those documents probably would find their way in a contemporary art gallery. And so the link between, the connection between their use as evidence uh, for, as court documents to uh, help the fight of uh, the, the, uh, the disenfranchised has a, a parallel function in an art gallery, in a contemporary art gallery. 
but not necessarily in the mainstream media. So, you know, just to... comments and Mishka sort of took it to the art, the art world um, but I just wanted to, to return to the earlier comment I made about you know there are, there are a lot, an awful lot more photographers around than just professional photographers so I imagine you know I, I doubt there's anybody sitting here who's never taken a photograph right we're, we're, all, we're all actually photographers now um, and certainly within the social sciences there's, there's a growing interest in, in, in giving people cameras groups of people that are seen as having a particular sort of identity or particular issue to, that they can articulate with images. Um, and I think that uh, this is a slightly sort of different angle on it, but I think the point there is perhaps not to produce you know, fantastic images necessarily, but, but to give a kind of moment or a space or a tool for people to reflect on uh, you know, what they think is important in their lives, what kind of places are important to them, what, what they would want to picture, what they would want to memorialise, what they want to show to others as, as a, you know, a documenting a, bro a broken bedstead or, you know, the, so I, I think as well as um, thinking about how art can sort of move into the, the sort of art, uh, photography can move into the kind of art realm uh, in terms of, of pushing public debate forward around issues. Um, it, it, it is also at a kind of much more mundane, kind of ordinary snapshot type of practice. Um, it can also be used there as a kind of tool for, for raising issues as well. I would just like to add that um, photographs might not explain things but they certainly draw attention to them and powerful photographs continue to have a role in doing that I mean just a, a very powerful image grabs your attention then you can go on and have a debate but I don't think I don't think I mean it may be a cliched image but I don't don't think it's redundant just to add to that sorry NGOs have been struggling with this for years because the images that get money that gets money in is the cliches Actually, just a quick plug, but a relevant one. We'll be talking about those issues. And here next week on the 3rd of June is a panel called Pic um, Picturing the World, the Future of Picturing the World. And I'm sure that issue will, this issue will come up then again. Question at the back there, man in blue. Thank you. I just wanted to make an observation that Charles Booth was um, awarded an honorary, honorary degree from Oxford University to, um, you know, in relation to the work that he did. And, uh, you know, when they came to consider Margaret Thatcher for that same sort of um, honour, if you like, they, they couldn't uh, uh, give her one of those. And maybe they used him perhaps as a benchmark, because if you compare the two in relation to what they were about, although Booth was, a, you know, from a very wealthy background, which ostensibly Margaret Thatcher was meant to be somehow uh, that caring for that kind of cl class of people. There's a sort of discrepancy. So it's an interesting um, observation, I think, why, why they didn't award her one, but they did for him. It clearly recognised that um, there was a difference in what they both achieved. I think it's um, interesting that in many ways, Booth was actually very disillusioned with the political process, even you know, in the late 19th century. Um, there is a, a, a story that he did some campaigning for the Liberal cam candidate in um, Toxteth in Liverpool when he was still based up there, and that this completely jaundiced him in terms of his experience of politics. 
um, during that period. Apparently, he was very disappointed because the Conservative got appoint, uh, got elected because he gave more beer. Um, and actually, he really never, um, you know, he never moved towards socialism like people like Beatrice uh, Potter. He he campaigned on issues like pension, but he was very much not not kind of involved with a party or the political process in that way. He kind of saw saw that as not helpful, I think, at all. So. Okay, there's a man over here in the blue. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, uh, throughout the history of photography, we um, had photographers that always looked at poverty, uh, also projects by governments. I'm like, remembering uh, in the United States the, the Farm Security Administration project. Um, um, that actually uh, helped, in this case, the American government to resolve uh, issues of poverty in the real rural areas of the country. Um, it's a, qu a question for, for all the panel. Uh, do you think that projects like this one that is downstairs um, do have same power and relevance nowadays with all the, all, all of the discussion about photography, restrictions on photography, so on and so on. How the question is, do you really think uh, for projects like this can make a change, can make something change? Um, it's probably best that I answer that question at least start to. This is a question that, that came up last night as well. Um, we would never claim that an exhibition in a gallery at LSE is going to have a direct impact on people's lives, um, not only because the context has changed since the period you're talking about, but also because it is an exhibition. The whole aim of the project um, was to encourage thinking, if you like, and discussion, and that's why it's attached to an event series about representation of poverty and beyond that, deconstruct this idea of the poor. Um, so it was really, if you like, uh, a thought-provoking tool. That was the aim um, of, of the project, uh, really. And though we couldn't uh, suggest that it would change lives directly, but hopefully it would have an indirect impact on how people think and conceive and choose to represent poverty um, as well. I don't know if anyone else wants to say. Yeah, I, I, most of the work I do is in the field of regeneration, which I think is a kind of an equivalent uh, purpose, if you like, and all I can say from my experience in working in regeneration is um, the work you do, the expectation of the work you do is, is loaded in such a narrow political and economic idea of what progress is and what uh, regeneration is that um, I'm constantly fighting battles with funders because my images are maybe too ambiguous say, or can be read in different ways. And in the context of, and I know that in the FSA, it was this, the photographers faced exactly the same battles. That, uh, you know, you, there were some incredible, you know, incredibly gifted photographers, Walker Evans, Dorothy Lang, who had, who had very different views about what progress might be to what the American government, uh, what, what their view of it was. And um, it's not anywhere near as simple as that, I don't think, that, uh, you know, that the funder 
like I said, like I, the question that I, I started my presentation with is who are we photographing poverty for? Essentially, if you answer that question, you get some idea of the kind of images you're going to get. And in the field of regeneration, certainly, there is no room, really, unless you're willing to fight huge battles, there's no room for images that can be read in different ways to what the political agenda might be or the economic agenda might be. And, and certainly working in the north of England, those, those lines are really uh, clear. And uh, um, yeah, we've, we've caused a lot of controversy <coughs> up there, actually, with the work we've done. Because it's not, for example, I'll give you an example, really straight example. Uh, had an exhibition at the Lowry, and one of the major funders of the exhibition threatened to pull the funding because not enough people in our images were smiling. To the second to the last speaker, um, just a little bit of clarity. Um, you said um, most of the poverty in London was actually Africa and Mumbai. Um, I didn't see how those two came in, because um, yeah, it was that actually. That probably wasn't very, very clear. Um, I, I'm, it, it's a question of, of um, thinking about how we picture poverty. And very often it's located in particular bounded places, whether that's the East End of London or the Gorbals in Glasgow or slums in Mumbai or whatever. Um, but I think if you think about, particularly now, if you think about the causes of poverty globally, um, the institutions that cause you know, huge amounts of global poverty are, are not kind of you know, disembodied things floating around in some global ether. They're actually located in, in New York, London, you know, to a lesser extent, Paris, Frankfurt, yeah. So you might, you, you, there might be an argument to, to think about, you know, if you're thinking about poverty in relation to London, that doesn't necessarily mean that London should be the only place pictured. Maybe that's a clearer way to put it. Um, in the, a lot of the, you know, the banks, the, the oil corporations that have their headquarters in London, um, you know, the, the, the consequences, uh, the negative consequences of, of a lot of their actions are not felt in London. You know, that's where the profits sit and where the wealth is made. The, the negative consequences are felt are felt elsewhere in, you know, oil fields and uh, you know, uh, you know, workshops, some you know, sweatshops, sweatshops, and so on elsewhere. Um, I think that there's an organisation in London called Platform, which does a lot of work around oil uh, headquarters in London, and then the consequences in other parts of the world for for, for the workers in oil fields and so on. I, I think they're quite well known in London. I guess perhaps people. That, that's, that's the kind of question I meant to raise, I guess, about how we locate not just poverty, but the causes of poverty, um, which is more problematic, I think, than just picturing those specific, bounded, uh, single places. Thank you. Um, there's a man here. <coughs> Thanks. Um, I just have a comment, um, which is partly about the discussion that's ensued from your uh, very interesting presentations. Um, it just struck me that uh, on the one hand, there some of the questioners have been um, sort of uh, wanting to go back to documentary realism of the late 19th century in, an, in a fairly unproblematic way. And uh, in contrast, Gillian um, uh, Rose has suggested that uh, um, you know everyone's a everyone ought to be a photographer. So on the one hand, you have a kind of reinstatement of documentary realism. On the other hand, 
perhaps it's death. And, um, and I thought the photographer, I didn't catch your name, uh, Mishka. I thought you're, you actually have it, uh, um, portrayed a different perspective to both these, uh, in the sense that uh, you've uh, demonstrated in, in, your, in the range of things you've shown us an awareness of how the kind of f um, photographic uh, ideology or literacy has shifted in, an, in a time of uh, media saturation, as one of the questions said. Um, we, we look at things through advertising, through, through slogans, through, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, word, well, you know, buzzwords and so on. And, and you try to show us images in that way. And you also, also go back to the daily you call it the nous of, of staying in these uh, uh, places, which I thought was fascinating and something that's, that's totally different from what the er earlier social documentary tradition could have been imagined, um, which, uh, you know, in the late 19th century, photographs which, which claimed to be speaking facts were, of course, completely aesthetized. And, and, and you, uh, in, interesting, in an interesting sort of reversal, claim that you like, uh, like it when your photographs are, you know, badly reproduced and so on. There's some interesting ironies in that, but um, I thought that you're up to something quite different from both those positions. Okay. Any last reflections from the panel? There's probably quite a time we've got four questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think in, in my presentation last night, I opened with a statement that uh, was along the lines of what you know, what what is my role as a documentary photographer? And I think when I started out, I really believed that um, through photographs you could comment and critique society, right? But uh, then I suddenly I realised that one person's critique was another's wall decoration, right? Nice picture to put on a wall. Um, and then um, I uh, I started thinking that maybe my images would have some kind of historic. Uh, value, right? That generation, future generations would look back on my work and see kind of how we lived and all that. And then you suddenly realise that everybody's taking pictures, right? So suddenly, uh, you, you, you know, that, that there's, there's, there's no, I'd be deluded if I really thought that uh, my work was more important than anybody else's. So, and I think what's quite interesting is how photographers are starting to position themselves more and more. And you're seeing a lot of photographers starting tonight, for example, work as curators, where they will, they will actually curate um, everyday photographs. Um, there's a guy called Julian Germain who's done some really great stuff in that area. And he started out as a, as a documentary photographer in, in very much the same way as, as, uh, as the kind of uh, tradition of documentary photography. But now he's much more a curator. And I think what, what I thought really, the kind of little mini breakthrough I had with the whole slogans idea was that uh, 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 the idea of what is visual is actually really quite narrow. So, for example, uh, why those slogans would not really be considered as photographs, and yet they are part of our visual environment, right? And all I'm doing by stripping the slogans out of their immediate context is I'm just giving more weight to the words, but I would be doing that by controlling lighting and controlling the background of a picture of, of somebody's portrait that I would do, right? So I, I'm, I'm really quite excited about the idea that the, the photographer is more an interpreter of the visual environment. Now, what is the visual environment is the question here. 
Is it necessarily the street, or is it the signs that are loaded in the street? Um, is it, for example, that the, the messages on the, t on the screen of a mobile phone, are they, is that not a legitimate visual environment that, that we're all operating within? And um, just to, to close off, um, one of the other things I did with this project, Tina, who was one of the residents in uh, Alexander Court, is really active on Facebook. And so I would be on, I would log into Facebook at, at midnight before going to bed, and suddenly my chat window would open, and it would be Tina. And I'd have these long chats with Tina on Facebook. And so I'd, did, I'd do screenshots of those chats. Um, but you know, you know, this is what I'm talking about. The project becomes so huge and massive visually. Um, and I think y y our job is to give co these complex things some, co some kind of coherence. But hopefully, maybe with the next project, I would start bringing all of those visual environments elements in that, that, that have no connection really to the, the history of representing poverty, if you like. Thank you. And before I thank the speakers, I'm afraid we've run out of time really for questions, um, just to say that there are some more events attached to this series, and there is one tomorrow, it's a Talking Pictures, um, with Martin Slavin and Mark Saunders, that's going to be in this uh, theatre uh, from 7 till 8, and they'll be showing work um, from um, their coverage of the London Olympics. And then next week, on the 3rd of June, there is the Future of Picturing the World, the panel discussion I mentioned, also in here, which is a 6.30 to 8 p.m. panel. And then following that, on the 4th of June, there's the last event, which is a special Talking Pictures. It's a screening of artist Renzo Martin's um, art action project, uh, provocatively entitled Enjoy Poverty. Um, so if you would like to attend some of those, you'll be most welcome. But thank you very much indeed uh, to the audience for questions and to the panellists for a really fascinating presentation. Thank you.